Hey, it's Brian from The Lund Loop. I just need a quick moment of your time before we get into today's episode. If you're a trader, an active investor, or just someone who's interested in the stock market, The Lund Loop is for you. As a paid subscriber, you'll get daily market insights and analysis, as well as actionable trade setups from my watch list that are designed to help you identify profit opportunities. More importantly, you'll get access to our exclusive members-only Discord, where other like-minded traders and investors interact and share their knowledge in a respectful and helpful way. Basically, it's the opposite of Twitter. I would love to have you become a part of the Lundloop community. It's the best RRI you can find. So head on over to thelundloop.com and become a subscriber today. Uh, is this the Lundloop? If so, um, we wish to cancel. Um, we do not wish to belong to that or to pay this anymore. Thank you. Hey, it's Brian. Welcome to the Lundloop Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the intersection of markets, money, and life. See, that was less radio DJ. My goal this week is to just talk, to not shout, just to be Brian. And I'm curious, if you've listened to the Lundloop Podcast for the full year that we've been around, what do you think? Am I doing any better? Do I sound better than I did in the beginning? I feel like I sound better. I feel like I'm trying to be more professional. I do have a few issues that I have not been able to surmount. One is I tend to speed up as the podcast goes on because I get so excited and I want to just talk about stuff. I also say so a lot <laughs> and well and basically. I'm trying to cut those out. But I'm curious if, if you think I sound any better or if you think I sound worse, hit me up. Shoot me an email. Let me know. We are going to talk about micro stressors in the stock market and how they can affect our P&L. But before we do, we're going to do the life section. And my goal, because there was a lot that went on at Casa de Lund this week, my goal is to get to the life section without crying. It's going to be tough, but I think I can do it. 11 years ago, 10 years ago, 11 years ago, we got what was potentially some devastating news. And that was that my son was on the spectrum, the autism spectrum. Now, to be fair, he was at the bottom of the spectrum. The spectrum starts at 29.5, and he was literally at 29.5. And autism is a, it's a behavioral issue, meaning you identify it by behaviors. I mean, I'm sure you could scan the brain and you might find uh, differences between an autistic person and a non-autistic person. But it's not like there's a blood test, you know, like where you have cancer. They go, oh, you got cancer, you have a disease. So it's, it's very behaviorally um, focused, which means there's a, 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 there's a range, a spectrum, like on behaviors, how extreme the behaviors are, how moderate they are, how high-functioning the person is. And so it's, it's sometimes a, a toss-up whether you whether someone's autistic or you know like me they're just a little odd but he he registered on the bottom of the autism scale and so you don't know what's going to happen as a parent right the first thing i'm thinking is oh my god what is his life going to be like is this going to get worse is it going to get better it was a very very scary 
time for my wife and I. Um, so at the time he was in a private school and the private schools uh, don't really have the resources to address issues like this. So we transferred him to a public school. So he started public school in kindergarten. And one of the things that they do when you have uh, autism or, well, I'll get to that in a second. They got him what's called an IEP. An IEP stands for an Individualized Education Program. It's literally a written legal document, and it's a plan that maps out the program of special education instruction, support, and services that a child is going to get so that they can do well in school, so they can level up, so to speak. And it's available to children that have one of 13 different, uh, I guess it would be conditions. And that can be anything from learning disabilities like dyslexia. It can be autism. It could be emotional disturbances like um, OCD, bipolar disorder, even schizophrenia. It can include speech and language impairment, visual and hearing impairment. It certainly covers uh, children that are blind or deaf. It can also include physical impairments, intellectual disabilities, and even children that have had traumatic brain injuries. So being that my son was on the autism scale, he qualified for IEP. And what it basically means is they set up exactly how his schooling is going to be. So depending on how severe the the classification is in those within those 13 different conditions you know they might be pulled out and put into a special type of class right or they may be in a regular class but during the course of the week they are pulled out of the class for like 30 minute um sessions with a counselor or a physical therapist or a um the psychologist and in these little times that they pull them out, they're working on stuff. They're working on social cues. They're working on uh, if they have a problem in a certain area, like math or something. So they're getting very, very specific support and very specific what are called services to to help them. Um, they can also get accommodations. So for example, they may need an extra day or two to do a, a homework assignment, or they may need a little bit of extra time to do a test. Um, so there's a, a wide variety of, of things that an IEP um, provides. And, and, and like I said, it is a legal document and it goes with, the, it's attached to the child. So it goes with them once they get one, it goes with them from school to school. So when he first got the IEP and when he first started in, in kindergarten, first grade, second grade, you know, he had a lot of services. He was pulled out of class uh, on a regular basis to have these um, more intense um, sessions with uh, counselors and things like that. And one of the things about autism, especially if you are high functioning, if you're on the lower end of the autism scale, because it is a behavioral issue, a lot of times as a child grows and they evolve, uh, they just, they evolve out of it, right? They they either find hacks or these uh, behaviors that would put them on the autism scale just become minimized until they go away. But one of the keys is to get really early um, is to address these things very early, early intervention. So we were right on this from day one. And so for most of uh, grade school, he had a decent amount of services. He got to uh, middle school. They started to 
trail off a little bit more as he improved, right? He, he kept getting, uh, we kept seeing progress. You get an annual um, review that we do with the, the teachers and the counselors. So he kept progressing, progressing. Uh, starting towards the end of sixth grade, his grades really started to go up and he started to work more independently without my help. Um, and so long story short, this week we went in for, we went in for the We went in for his annual IEP review, and I know the team because I've been working with them for eight, nine years, and they said, well, we've got good news and we've got bad news, and I said, I'll take the bad news first, and they said, we don't think your son qualifies for IEP anymore, and I said, okay, and they said, and the good news is because he doesn't need it. And what they explained to me was that that this whole year, he hasn't had any services, none. Like literally like this year was exactly the same as any other child would have had. what they would say. Uh, a normal child. I'm doing that with air quotes because we know that normalcy is, you know, relative. Um, so from all standards, he's just like every other kid, you know. And by the way, getting straight A's and doing fantastic. So I said, great. That's awesome. This, I mean, this is what we wanted. This was the best case scenario. When we got this news uh, 10 years ago, the best case scenario would be exactly what they told me this week. Like, and, and, you know, I never thought we'd get there. I thought, oh, we'll get to maybe 75% of it, 80% of it. But no, we, we literally got exactly where we want, where he doesn't need accommodations. He's just like everybody else and onwards and upwards. And so it was great, you know. I mean, we almost had a celebration. And um, and if you were to see my son, he would you would you would have no idea. You would think, oh, it's just like every other kid. Um, but I'll tell you this. But he's such a sweetheart, and uh, he's he he's just got a good heart. And so one of the things that he uh, does is it he's got a, what's called study skills. And it's a class at the end of the day. And you can either choose to have a, uh, you can either have a elective or you can have the study skills ca- class. And he's decided, you know, we gave him the option every year to either have study skills or to have elective. And he's always said he, he wants study skills because he's learned how to structure his day so that that last hour, the study skills class, is when he does his homework. He does all his homework there, and you've got teachers there that can help if he needs something. So they can come home, and most of his homework's done. He can play whatever. But there are um, 
some of the kids that are in the study skills class are special needs kids because they need the extra help. And he said to me like a week and a half ago, he said, hey, let me back up real quick. We've never told him he's autistic. Never. We're not hiding the fact that he is. We're not embarrassed of it. I mean, I'm telling it on a podcast right here. I talk about, but I never wanted to label him. I never wanted him to have a label. I just want him to be Camden, not the autistic kid, not the kid with IEP. Just Camden. I also didn't want that to be an excuse. An excuse not to, um, you know, I can't do that because, you know, I've got autism. I just want him to rise on his own merits without this, you know, this baggage of a label. And, you know, I've had this discussion, should, you know, will we tell him someday? Will we know that? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. Well, it's it's been a non-issue, right? Which is the way I wanted it to be. But you think that over the course of seven, eight years, you know, maybe he'll hear the word or he'll realize it. He'll say, hey, I'm... Uh, am I autistic? And uh, so we're we're driving home uh, two weeks ago, and he said, "Hey, can I ask you a question?" And I said, "Sure." He said, "Have I ever been in any sort of program or anything in school?" <laughs> and I'm like, "Um, I don't know. I, no, I mean, why do you ask?" And he said, "I I just I looked around my study skills class the other day, and I realized that a lot of these kids." Uh, have some issues. <laughs> and I said, oh, they do? He goes, yeah, I mean, I mean, some of them have a hard time learning and sometimes have a hard time, you know, they're, 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 they, they don't know when to stop talking. You know, he was just basically noticing some of the, um, I don't know if you would call it abnormal behavior, but you know, you know, you know what I'm saying, right? And I said, ah, you know, I, you know, I, I kind of obfuscated it. And I said, uh, I said, well, you want to switch out of that class, out of the study skills? And he's like, I don't know. He goes, I, I mean, I said, well, look, it's up to you. I said, if you want to stay in the class, uh, we only have two months left. That's fine. If not, we can see about, you know, transferring you to an elective. But, you know, it's kind of late in the year. But He goes, yeah, you know, it's fine. I like everyone that's in there. And I said, okay, cool. So, you know, I I feel doubly successful in that we got the outcome that we wanted. He's never been burdened by, uh, this label, you know, um, something that would, uh, you know, hold him back or something that would, uh, bother him. You know, he's just, he's been Camden and he's done great. And, um, very excited about high school. And, uh, I'm very blessed and very lucky that we got this outcome. Uh, it's this the Lunt Loop. Woo! That got a little heavy, didn't it? <laughs> okay, I think we need a palate cleanser here. Let's let's get back to the stock market. There's there's no crying allowed in the stock market. Unless, of course, you own pot stocks, then I think it's reasonable uh, that you could cry. This week I was reading an article in the Wall Street Journal written by two professors. Can't remember the specifics of what type of professors they were. Um, in honor of the late Norm MacDonald, let's just call them professors of logic from the University of Science. And it was an excerpt that they wrote from their latest book. Their book is called 
the micro stress effect, how little things pile up and create big problems and what to do about it. This book is based upon some recent research that they did, which included in-depth interviews with over 300 successful people working at a wide range of companies. What they initially set out to do was to study these people to figure out how high performers build and sustain networks. But as they got into this study, they figured out, oh, there's something else going on. Contrary to how the employers saw these high-performing employees, many of the employees felt like they were on the verge of burnout. And they felt like there was constantly difficulties that they were dealing with and they were just really stressed out. And that's when these two professors identified what they call microstressors. They define microstressors as brief, frequent moments of everyday tension that accumulate and impede us even though we don't register them. Microstressors are different than regular stress. Regular stress is triggered by a notable anxiety-producing event like you have a conflict with a friend or a colleague, or maybe you have a health scare. But micro-stresses are hard to spot because they are already baked into our lives. They're like table stakes, so we don't notice them. Micro-stressors can manifest in many different ways, but one of the examples they give is you get to the end of the day and you feel extraordinarily exhausted, but you don't know why. There was no traumatic event, no unpleasant encounter that stands out, You don't have any urgent work deadlines. There's no health issues. There's nothing hovering in the background that you failed to take care of. You just feel anxious and beaten down. And what's even worse, you don't know why. They talk about how our brains are wired to respond to conventional forms of stress with a flight or uh, with fight or flight, I guess that's a fight or flight response. And you notice that it's a very obvious response, but micro micro stressors, they're too fleeting. They don't register on your conscious mind, but they affect you subconsciously. It reminds me of an example that my uh, therapist gave me when I was in therapy. Sometimes I would be stressed out, anxious, and I couldn't figure out why there didn't seem to be any event connected to it or, or that would have triggered it. And she said, let me give you an example. Let's say you are driving down a street and it's a tree-lined street. And you're not really paying attention to the trees. You're looking straight ahead. But every now and then you glance right or you glance left. And you're not even really looking at the trees. You're looking kind of through the trees, past them at the vista in the background. And let's say as you're doing this, you come across a tree that's particularly old and gnarled and misshapen. You may have had a incident as a kid. Let's say you went on a camping trip with your family and you got separated from them. You got lost. Or let's say you went over to your parents' farm and you went into the, the forest and back of the farm and you got lost. And in the area where you got lost, there were these type of trees, like older trees, gnarled trees, misshapen trees. As you're driving down the road present day and you're looking at the vista in the background, one of these misshapen gnarled trees goes by you really quickly. You don't consciously register it, but your subconscious does. And what it does is it goes and it connects with that same feeling you had when you were lost in the forest or lost in, in the, on the camping trip, that, that scared, afraid, anxious nature. So it can actually trigger that without you realizing 
that there was a triggering event. And when you have a lot of these micro stressors over the course of the day, they really add up. There's a quote in this article from Joel Salinas, who is a behavioral neurologist at New York University's Grossman School of Medicine. And he says, micro stressors fly under the radar, but they still take a significant toll. Imagine wind eroding a mountain. It's not the same as a big TNT explosion that punches a hole in the mountain, but over time, if the wind never stops, it has the potential to slowly whittle down the entire mountain into just a little nub. So that's the way that microstressors function in our life. Physiologically, they can actually increase our blood pressure and our heart rate. They can also trigger hormonal or metabolic changes. And a study that was published in the Journal of Biological Psychology in 2015 found that exposure to these sort of microstresses within two hours of eating a meal, it actually leads to your body metabolizing the food in a way that adds 104 calories, meaning it doesn't burn those 104 calories. If that happens daily, you could literally gain 11 pounds per year just on that extra stress. All right, so look, just because we have these microstressors in our life doesn't mean that we have to succumb to them. And one of the things they found in their research is they identified a small subset of high performers that they call the 10 percenters. And the 10 percenters were much better at coping with microstress than the rest of the people that they studied. And in looking at the 10 percenters, they isolated a couple of things. They actually isolated a bunch of things, but we're going to talk about three things that the 10 percenters do differently to minimize that microstress. Now, where's the, the stock market part of this? It occurred to me as I was reading this article that there are micro-stressors, that's a tough word to keep saying, micro-stressors in all sorts of aspects of your life, like specific aspects. I imagine the micro-stressors that a ER doctor has to endure are very specific to being an ER doctor. Uh, Maybe a fireman has a different group of micro-stressors. We obviously have specific type of microstressors as market participants. So as they went through and identified these three, I could see the analog to what we do in the market. So let's let's talk about that. The first way that the 10 percenters minimize microstressors is related to the concept of I feel your pain. In the research that these scientists did, they found that if people around us are stressed unhappy, we feel it too. If people around us are constantly negative, if they're toxic, we feel it too. And it's really important because decades and decades of social science research has shown that negative interactions have a bigger weighting than positive interactions. In fact, up to five times as much as a positive interaction. So that means for every five times you have a negative interaction, you need 25 positive interactions to counterbalance that. So what the 10 percenters do is they eliminate the people in their lives. They eliminate the the inputs in their life that bring that negativity in, that bring that uh, toxicity in. If we step into the market, I think this one's really clear. We have to filter out all the noise that we're bombarded with all the time, but more, more, partic- more particularly, 
More specifically, the negative noise, because that is the way most financial media, most social media, most um, your Twitter feeds, they tend to skew negatively. And the way that that affects us is we, we hear it, we hear it, it's in the background, it's in the foreground all the time. And even though we may say, I'm, I'm bullish about the market, or I'm neutral about the market, or I'm not listening to all that BS, it subconsciously seeps in, just like the, the micro stressors. We don't realize it seeps in, but it does. And here's just one example of where it can in come out in your investing or your trading. When we trade or when we are going to buy a stock on a pullback to support, or let's say a pullback to a moving average, the support area is also the breakdown area. But I'm having a hard time speaking today. The Pullback area is also the breakdown area, meaning if we come to that level and we bounce and continue going higher, that was a support level. But if we come to that level, we base and then we break lower, that's the breakdown level. When price is coming into that area, we may think, okay, I want to buy on this pullback. But if we've got this underlying negativity that we're not even aware of because we've been exposed to so much external negativity, when we get to that pullback, we might be uh, we might be more inclined to say, you know what, I don't think it's going to hold here, and we might act before we should, uh, just because we're scared, or we're fearful. Then the stock ends up bouncing, we miss a good entry point. So I think that's a way that that the constant negativity that we're exposed to, even if we think we're holding it back, can affect us. Number two, ten percenters are more proactive. They're more, they, they deal with situations head on. They don't avoid them. One of the examples they give is that if a 10 percenter has a friend who drinks a lot and likes to overindulge when they go out, they're more likely to start suggesting things like going to the movies or going to situations where there's not alcohol present. They're being proactive about channeling the direction of the interaction so that they're minimizing the chance that that friend is going to go get lit and it's going to be a, a crappy night. I think in the market, the analogy is we always have to be proactively looking at what we're doing and seeing, is it working? Is it working as well as it has before? Is it time to change what we're doing? Now, that might seem like a stressful situation right there. But if we're on a regular basis, you know, let's say every week, twice a month, once a month, whatever it is. If we're looking at our methodology, if we're reviewing our trades and our investments, we're seeing, are they working the way we want them to work, the way we expect them to work? Um, that way, we're going to notice if we start to see a little bit of a breakdown. Like, let's say your performance is, let's just say your performance monthly is 10%. And then you start seeing it trend down to 9, 8, 7. You, give, you have the option right then to proactively go, okay, I think there's something going on here tweaking it before it turns to negative performance. I think a lot of people just do a set it and forget it. And they're not proactive about, you know, doing the, the postmortems that we've talked about before. And the great thing is, if you're doing that on a regular basis, if you're challenging your methodology, if you're making sure it's tight and it's working, it actually will give you a sense of security because you'll feel more, uh, secure that you're not going to have a surprise happen, that you're not just asleep at the wheel 
And one day the, the methodology or the, the, the way you invest or the way that you trade goes from being profitable to unprofitable. So it gives you that feeling of security that you are doing something, you're being proactive. Okay, the third way that 10 percenters minimize microstresses is they nurture a variety of connections and social groups outside of their close friends and family. And here's why. Close friends and family, that's the biggest source of microstressors. And of course, you can't eliminate your close friends and your family, but you can broaden your social circles out so that you're not just dependent upon them for your interactions. So for example, they would get involved in athletic pursuits. They would do volunteer work. Uh, they would do religious or civic work. They would join book clubs, dinner clubs, anything to, to create this, uh, this social world outside of just their close friends and family. That allows them to see life from different angles, different perspectives. And it keeps the 10 percenters from getting mired in the weeds with inconsequential stresses. Again, if we go to the the market, this one I, to me, it seems pretty clear. It means don't make your whole life about the stock market. Make sure that you are turning off your screens. Make sure that you're walking away from the market um, on a regular basis, that when the close happens, shut your screens off and really turn your mind off about the market until the next time you're supposed to be focused on it. Just this week, in the middle of the day, middle of the trading day, it was uh, like 10 o'clock out here in uh, Pacific Coast. It had been a decent week. I felt like I was just starting to overtrade a little bit and was going to push it. The market wasn't in a real, uh, there wasn't anything in the market that I felt compelled to do. And in fact, I felt like I'd be pushing it a little bit if I was trying to put some trades in. So I just went on a hike. I went out and took a two-hour hike. And it was great because I got to de-stress. Uh, I came back refreshed. So I think remembering that the reason that we're in the market, I mean, look, we love it, right? We love the game. Uh, we love We love everything about it. But the real reason that we're in the market, I think, is to to provide us with the type of lifestyle we want. Now, that could either be with a certain amount of money so that you can provide for family and friends, or it can be a freedom, right, that you don't have a boss or that you can, you're, you're more able to say screw you to your boss because you have another source of income. I think remembering that and remembering all those other things outside the market that are important to us and then indulging in them on a, a regular basis, on an active basis, that gives us the same perspective that, that those 10 percenters have. So that when we are looking at the market, it's not all do or die. It's not like I have to be in front of my screens every moment of that the market is open. And that helps us keep a fresh perspective and hopefully goes a long way towards eliminating those micro stressors. Um. I would like to repeat that want to be canceled from the Lund loop, whatever you've got me on. Um, if you wish to call and explain what it is, uh, actually, uh, forget that. Well, that's it for this episode. If you got any questions, hit me up at Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at thelungloop.com. 
I'll see you next time. Bye.